You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. This fourth lecture I call The Moral Order. At the outset of his commentary on Aristotle's ethics, St. Thomas recalls a maxim, which he gives, of course, in Latin, sapientus est ordinare. It is the mark of the wise man to order. And then he goes on to speak of a number of different orders. He's doing this in order to locate the study that he's commenting on, the ethics of Aristotle, in a wider array of disciplines. Let me just read a few sentences from the passage in which he distinguishes four orders. He says, there is one order that reason does not establish, but only beholds, such is the order of things in nature. There is a second order that reason establishes in its own act of consideration. For example, when it arranges concepts among themselves and the signs of concepts as well because words express the meanings of the concepts. There is a third order that reason in deliberating establishes in the operations of the will, and there is a fourth order that reason in planning establishes in the external things which it causes, such as a chest or a house. Now, these four orders are respectively the order of the natural world, which would include all theoretical philosophy, the second order, the arrangement in our concepts and so forth, that's the logical order, and the third, reason by deliberating establishes in the operations of the will, the order it establishes, that's the moral order. And the fourth is, of course, that of art in the broad sense of construction. Morality. The moral order, what is it concerned with? I mean, Thomas's little description of it, there it is, the third order that reason in deliberating establishes in the operations of the will. If we had to just give a simple response to the question, what is the subject matter of moral philosophy? The simple answer would be human action, human action. A mark of the moral is that we are answerable for what we do. We're responsible for our deeds. The question, why did you do that, is the mark of that particular feature of moral action. Why would we ask, why did you do that, unless there were the possibility that one would have acted otherwise and that he is answerable for the way in which he did act. So freedom is the presupposition here, as I mentioned earlier. This is not something that has to be proved, rather attacks on it have to be disproved. Now, one of the first distinctions that Thomas makes when he takes up the moral order, having said, as I just did, that human acts are the subject matter of moral philosophy, he, anticipating a difficulty, makes a distinction between what he calls human acts, which is going to be our interest, on the one hand, and what he calls acts of a man. And what he means by the second phrase is those activities or occurrences, operations, processes, which go on in us, which are not peculiar to us. I mentioned earlier as well that man is a microcosm. There is a sense in which the cosmos is summed up in him. 
He can be weighed like a rock. He takes nourishment and grows like a plant. He has sense perception and emotion in the manner of the brute animals, and he has, besides that, reason. That is the mark of man. That is what characterizes him. So that while it's true to say so-and-so is digesting or so-and-so is growing or shrinking, as the case may be, these true statements about something going on in a human being do not point to human acts as such. Why? Because we are not answerable for them. We don't get credit for having a digestive system. We don't get credit or blame for responding emotionally to certain perceived objects. When we see a menacing object, we instinctively, as we say, feel fright. We want to withdraw. Something attractive, there is an impulse towards it. This just happens in us in the way in which it does in animals. But as we will see, morally considered, insofar as those things can come under the sway of reason, they too will enter into the moral order. But the mark of the moral is that which sets man off from all other things, which characterizes human actions as human, that is, those activities found in us in no other cosmic creature, rational, conscious, deliberate, voluntary action. Those, again, for which we are responsible. Voluntary action, of course, can sometimes mean simply the act of the will itself. And sometimes it can mean like moving my hand. Is that a voluntary action? Well, it's the act, you might say, of my hand, not of my will, but it is an activity which is in response to my rational, deliberate, voluntary direction. So it's voluntary in a secondary sense. Thomas will distinguish these as elicited acts of the will, acts of the will as such, and commanded acts of the will. That will become important when we look at his analysis of human action. Now, there is a puzzle that Thomas does not address at this point, but which will occur to you, of course, and that is, if we say that all human actions are moral, and Thomas will make that equation, human acts are moral actions and vice versa. So it is an identity statement. Now, you're going to say, well, wait a minute, golfing is a human action. And when I say that someone golfs well, I don't seem to be saying that is a good person. Huh? I mean, he could conceivably be a bad person and a good golfer, or more likely, a good person and a bad golfer. But there are human acts like golfing or building a house, walking, and so forth, which we might say you do it well or badly, but it's not a moral appraisal, and yet these are acts of a human being. These are deliberate, rational, and so forth. Nobody golfs unconsciously, except when he gets a hole in one, probably, but when we go out to golf, this is something we set out to do. You have to set aside a certain number of hours in order to go around. And if someone asks, what are you doing? You'd say, I'm golfing. And why are you doing that? You'd give some kind of reason. What's my point? There are certain appraisals of human action, golfing, banking, building a house, and so forth, where we say it's being done well, and we don't think of it as a moral appraisal. So what is Thomas's response? What would be his response to that? And it's an important question, because if this question cannot be answered satisfactorily, the identification of human acts and moral acts will seem, on the face of it, rather bizarre. Do we want to say that golfing is a moral act? Well, Thomas, I think, would say, we will distinguish. Obviously, there is a way of appraising the activity of golfing in terms of doing it well or badly, which is a different appraisal from a moral appraisal. But, he would argue, it's also appraisable in a moral way. 
That is, we can blame a good golfer for playing, huh? if we think of certain circumstances, if he's neglecting his family, if he's lying about his score, if he's kicking the ball out of the rough and so forth. These are against the rules of the game, but also we would think it's a breach of trust between him and others with whom he is playing golf. So the point would be this, while it is the case, and it's important to realize it, that there are technical appraisals of human acts, such as golfing, banking, building, and so forth, all of those can be appraised in a moral way as well. And the moral appraisal of them is the more profound and pervasive. Not every human act is subject to a technical appraisal, but all human acts are subject to a moral appraisal. So while this is a very important and interesting objection or difficulty, it doesn't shake the identification that Thomas is proposing, namely that all human acts are moral acts, all moral acts are human acts. When he uh, turns to the structure of human action, what makes up a human action, Thomas gets rather complicated, and he will talk about a series of will acts that bear on the end, and then a series of will acts that bear on the means to the end. And he will speak of our recognizing something as good, as attractive, and responding to it voluntarily in an in initial and primary way. And he will call this, well, willing it, or voluntas in the Latin. He uses the term of the capacity or faculty for this first, most primary act of the will. We might dwell then on the thing that has attracted us and has elicited this act of voluntas, and we might take delight in considering the thing that is presenting itself. And we might then go on to intend to bring it about or to pursue it or to get it. And if that is the case, then we would turn, Thomas says, to a consideration of the means. And after deliberation, we might find a number of means which are congenial to us, and then we would have to choose among them. If there's only one means to the end, of course, the choice would be the next act. And then finally, we're moving out of what Thomas calls the order of intention. This is all antecedent to overt behavior. And we then use our body, our other faculties, in order to execute the plan that has been arrived at in the order of intention by way of deliberation and so forth. Now, we might find this all Baroque and fantastic to think of any human act as being made up of all of these elements. And indeed, most human actions take place in such a way that we're in no conscious way aware of these steps that Thomas is talking about. But there is a way in which we can see that these are indeed constitutive elements of any complete human action by noticing that human act can be interrupted at any one of these points. As we go through the day, any number of things present themselves to us as attractive, and we notice that, and that's the end of it. We go on. Sometimes we dwell on the attractiveness of particular objects for a greater or lesser time, and this is more than simply being attracted by them, but that might be the end of it. Huh? And then we go on, in some cases, then to say, I want that. I'm going to uh, tend towards it. I'm going to intend it. And then the question, of course, one might be interrupted, and that would be the end of the action. So in reflecting on it, you could say, well, yeah, I intended it, but I became distracted, other things came up, I just forgot about that. Huh? But say you didn't, and you go on, you start thinking of ways in which that good or end could be achieved. 
And as I suggested, Thomas is saying, when you come upon ways in which you could achieve the end, they present themselves to you as attractive. Huh? And there might be several of them, and then you have to puzzle over which would be the best way to achieve the end, and you choose that. Here, too, there could be an interruption of the action prior to anything like a choice. The choice then might be made, and you might be prevented from actually executing the plan that you have put together. So this notion of a human action as being made up of a number of components, while when we see it first, or when you first heard me lay it out, three acts, having will acts, having to do with the end, three will acts, having to do with the mean, as I say, you might have thought, how medieval, how baroque, to uh, think of human actions which happen so smoothly and rapidly is made up of all of these components. And as I suggest, they're there. And one way that we see them is when the act is interrupted. And in reflecting on our moral life, we very often pay as much attention to the acts that didn't go into overt behavior as those that do. There are, in effect, sins of thought as well as of execution, and I suppose virtues of thought as well. Well, now that we have some idea of Thomas's sense of the structure of a human act, of a complete human act, because obviously the interrupted human act is a human act to that point, and as I indicated, it is possible consequently for there to be sins of thought. If we dwell on an object, the pursuit of which would be reprehensible, of course, we begin to be tainted by that kind of fantasizing, as we might say. It is furthermore the mark of a human act that it is undertaken for the sake of an end. Why are you doing that is in effect asking what was the object, what was the end, what good did you have in mind when you acted? For Thomas, as for all right-thinking individuals, finality is a universal fact of the cosmos. Everything in the cosmos is acting for the sake of an end. Its nature is such that it has a particular function that it plays within the order of the universe as a whole. But of course, most things and cosmic things other than man are simply being propelled to their end by the nature that they have. There's no question of their deliberating about it or being held responsible for it. We don't blame rocks for falling or dogs for barking and so forth. We try to train them not to, but we're not really thinking that we're training them in a moral way so that from now on, on their own, they will consider whether or not it's wise to bark and so forth. When we turn to finality in human beings, we have this deliberate, conscious directing of ourselves to our end. So while there are many functions in man, as I mentioned, insofar as he's a microcosm, which have their ends in the natural way, our digestive, our reproductive functions, our respiratory system, and so forth, they are what they are, and because they are what they are, we know how to appraise their functioning well or badly. But again, that is not a moral appraisal. In the case of human action, what we are doing is deliberately setting a goal and directing ourselves to it. Conscious, deliberate, voluntary activity. So finality in the case of human beings is a special case in one sense in that every agent in the universe acts for the sake of an end. And it's unique in another because man alone among cosmic creatures knows what his end is and directs himself freely and voluntarily to it so that he can do well or badly in a way that is blameworthy or praiseworthy. 
praise and blame are other marks, as you can appreciate, of the moral action. If we say then, as I just did, and as we can truly say, that every act that we undertake is undertaken for the sake of some end, can we turn that around and say there is some single end for the sake of which every act is undertaken? This is the question that animated the Greek moralist. Plato, Aristotle, they want to know what is the good for man? Not this good, that good, and the other good, but what is the comprehensive or overall good for a human being, that which will constitute his fulfillment, his perfection, or happiness? So in what does human happiness consist? This was the great quest of classical moral philosophy, as it is indeed of Thomas Aquinas' moral philosophy. But how do you get from every act is undertaken for the sake of an end to there is some end for the sake of which every act is undertaken? It's not, of course, arrived at simply by converting, logically speaking, the first proposition that every agent acts for some end. You're not going to just turn that around and say, therefore, there must be some end for the sake of which all agents act. I mention that because very often Aristotle and St. Thomas are thought to have made this elementary logical mistake. And I suppose it's a rule of reading philosophy that when you come upon an absolutely elementary mistake in the writings of a philosopher worthy enough to be read, you ought to at least entertain the possibility that there's some misunderstanding on your part rather than that he's the village idiot. This, in short, is not the way in which Thomas or Aristotle hold that there is an overall comprehensive end for the sake of which we do anything that we do. How do they arrive at it if they don't do it by way of this logical fallacy they're accused of committing? What Aristotle does is it's a beautiful analysis as to how you can get to saying, well, how do we know that so-and-so is a good human being? How do we know that this is a good man? And Aristotle proposes this. He said, well, how do we go about saying that someone is a good golfer? And we would say, well, he golfs well. Well, what does that mean? Well, what is golfing? Someone who drives well, who uses his irons well, who chips well, who putts well, and knows how to add, that person will be a good golfer. And we can have better and not so good in terms of whether one fulfills all or some of those functions. So it's, it can sometimes be a kind of fine-grained or complicated thing to say of someone, he's a good golfer, he's a good bank teller, he's a good chef, and so forth. But we know how to do it. All we have to do is say, well, what do we mean by being a chef? Aristotle says we would understand what the function is, and once we've got that, we have the criteria for appraising its being done well or badly. And so too, we can, as Aristotle says, we could say the functioning of the respiratory system or of the eye is such that once you know what an eye is for, you know whether it's operating, acting well. Once you know what the respiratory system is, you know when it's failing or doing its job. And you can say, well, when the doctor says you're in good health, that's, of course, what he's saying. Now, these are, of course, commonplace things, and this is the mark of the uh, kind of philosophizing that we're being introduced to by Thomas Aquinas, that it's not afraid of being obvious. It's not afraid of starting with the simple. And so to hear the remark about the good golfer, how would you go about saying that someone is a good golfer? Or for that matter, if someone says that's a good car, I mean, you want to know, does it do the sort of things that a car is supposed to do? 
If you bought a car and when you drove out of the lot, the wheels rolled off and the doors fell off and the motor dropped onto the road and so forth, you'd probably go back rather indignant to the dealer and say, why did you sell me that car? You said it was a good car. We would feel we'd been defrauded. And so in calling it a good car, we are assuming, as anyone would who knows the English language, he's saying that it does the sort of thing you expect a car to do. Now, there are good, better, and best cars, of course, but nonetheless, it's a range within which, and if it falls outside of that entirely, then we're going to feel defrauded. If there's not enough air in the rear left tire, we can get that fixed. We're not going to think we've been defrauded and so forth. But again, if it behaves in the way in which I indicated first, we say, this is a bad car. This doesn't even rise to the level of being a lemon. Okay. Aristotle is, as Thomas is, he's perfectly intent to dwell on that sort of thing. And we're with him. Anyone's with him. We know what he's talking about. We know how to proceed in that way. We say, yeah, that's what we do. Then Aristotle says this. This is the move that he makes. If there is a function of the human being as such, then performing that function well would be the basis for saying this is a good human being. And we say, that's right. That's right. That's the analogy. Just as we do in the case of the golfer, the chef, the builder, and so forth. So too, why not just say, if man had a function, his performing that well would constitute being a good man. And Aristotle then says, but he does have a function. And what is that function? Well, he's looking here for the mark that sets the human agent off from every other agent. And we know what it's going to be, rational activity. So at this point in Aristotle's argument, on the basis of the analogy with the golfer and the appraisal of the golfer, it looks as if he can now say, man's function is rational activity. Acting rationally well is what makes a human being a good human being. And we figure we're home free. Until, of course, we take note of a fact that Aristotle is quick to remind us of, and that is that rational activity has a number of meanings. It's not a univocal term. It is, as a matter of fact, what we learned from Thomas to call an analogous term. There is an ordered set of meanings for rational activity. It can mean the activity of theoretical reasoning, knowing. It can mean using our mind to direct activities other than reasoning, practical reasoning. And it can mean the way in which Our emotions, for example, can participate in reason insofar as they are directed by it. So that, say, in temperance, our desire for sense pleasure is brought under the control and direction of reason so that the pursuit of pleasure contributes to our overall end. And in the case of courage or fortitude, our quite natural and instinctive fear when confronted by menacing object, is brought under the control of reason. So despite feeling fear, we act well rationally in those circumstances. So that there is participated rational activity. Our fears and hopes, our desires, can be brought under the sway of reason and contribute rather than disrupt our integral good. If this is True, if there are these at least three senses of rational activity, and we can say theoretical reasoning, practical reasoning, participated reasoning, then we might say it looks as if we're going to have to have three virtues in order to talk about a human being as a good human being. Well, much of Aristotle's analysis in moral philosophy is coming up with 
any number of virtues that fall under each of those categories and considering them. So what do we end up with for Aristotle as that towards which we tend and which will constitute our fulfillment or perfection, our ultimate end? What is it going to be for Aristotle? It's going to be a set of virtues. It's not going to be a single virtue. Anymore, I suppose we can say that there's a single skill that the golfer performs would lead us to call him a good golfer. He has to be able to do a number of things well, and then that set of good performances would lead us to say, he's a scratch golfer, he's a good golfer. So too in the case of the human rational agent, there is a cluster or set of virtues which will be constitutive of the good for man, of that which we are pursuing as our fulfillment. And as we will be seeing later on in this lecture, there is a sense in which the coming together of the moral order and of what we'll be talking about in terms of metaphysics can be seen. So that it's notoriously the case, as we will see, that contemplation is what Aristotle says is the virtue which most perfectly fulfills us. Could it possibly be the only one? We'll come back to that particular argument. This, at any rate, is Aristotle's way of coming at what he means by the good for man. What is the good that we're driving at? Uses the function analysis, and we figure, yeah, that's very useful. He applies it to man. You get the initial conclusion. If man has a function, performing it well is the basis for our saying that a person is a good human agent. Then we notice that that function, rational activity, has a variety of meaning. That leads to the realization that our end or happiness or good is constituted by a cluster of virtues. And then the question arises, what is the order among that set of virtues? And as I suggested for Aristotle, as indeed for Thomas, that virtue of contemplation of the theoretical intellect is the most perfect embodiment of the human good, but not as we will see, the exclusive embodiment. We can see similarities and dissimilarities when we turn to Thomas Aquinas's treatment of the notion of an ultimate end, overall purpose of whatever we do. And in many respects, although it's a variation, I think, on Aristotle's, it's got a kind of simplicity about it that commends it. Thomas puts it this way, any action that we undertake is undertaken for the sake of some good, some good. And he suggests that this means that it's obvious this then is a particular good. So it shares in some way in goodness, but does not exhaust it. No? So that what he is suggesting is this, that to go for anything whatsoever, any concrete object, any particular objective, is to see it under the aegis or the umbrella of goodness. And we're saying it is good, it's a good thing. It's not goodness, but it's a good thing. So you have to see it, as he puts it, sub ratione boni. You have to see it under the umbrella of goodness as sharing in it in order to pursue it at all. So the question then is, what could we come up with that would fulfill in a complete way this notion of what objects of pursuit could we say are such that their attainment would be indeed the fulfillment of all of our desires. And if we can find that, of course, we'd have, as Thomas points out, we would have ultimate end in two senses. What does that mean? Thomas, when he asked the question, does everybody pursue the same ultimate end, says yes, but it's a qualified yes. He says yes insofar as 
anyone in acting is pursuing what he pursues on the implicit assumption that the having of it either constitutes or is conducive to his overall happiness. So that's the lens, so to speak, through which we see any particular object that we pursue. Now, the question is, do the things that we actually pursue rightly come under that umbrella? Are they really or only apparently conducive to our fulfillment and our perfection? So in one sense, everybody, good, bad, indifferent people, whatever they do, they're doing implicitly out of a desire for their fulfillment as such, their perfection, their happiness. Huh? But the question then arises, are they doing it in such a way that what they're pursuing truly would lead to their happiness? So there is a distinction made between apparent goods and true goods. And the task of moral philosophy then becomes, what deservedly is pursued as that which will be fulfilling of it? And the concrete embodiment of this notion of that which is fulfilling, perfective, completive of us, that is ultimate end in the more concrete sense. So we have the notion of ultimate end and those things which are said, thought to fulfill the notion of ultimate end. So everyone is pursuing implicitly, no matter what he does, good or bad, what he pursues on the assumption that the having of it would be better for him than the not having of it better form overall. So that is the formality of ultimate end. But we want to know, well, yes, but in what does the ultimate end truly consist in terms of these objects or as opposed to uh, those? What we want, in short, and you can see what Thomas is going to suggest here as a theologian, what we want when we act and choose this good or that good or the other good, we want them insofar as they share in goodness. And if there should be some object of will, which is not only a good thing, but is goodness itself, that would be the answer to all of our desires. Remember Augustine's remark at the outset of the confession where he's addressing God, thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. When God is said to be the ultimate end of human action, this is what is meant. The goodness that we seek in a shared and participated way, in particular object, is in God identical with what he is. He is goodness. So that if we should see God, when we do see God, there will be no question whatsoever of our loving him. No deliberation will be necessary at all. This will be uh, the raison d'etre, let us say, of willing it all. And once goodness itself is presented to us, that is going to necessarily attract us. That will be the fulfillment of our freedom, however Thomas would say. Now, this notion of ultimate end, as Thomas talks about it, as I say, it requires us to be able to distinguish between apparent goods and real good. Where do we look? for criteria for distinguishing the true good. I want to say a few words here about what Thomas calls natural law. Natural law is describable, we might say, as these are the starting points of moral appraisal. These are judgments that anyone makes in acting, most fundamental judgments, implicit, embedded judgments in any of our actions, which are the ultimate guidelines for what we ought to do and what we ought not to do. Remember, at the end of the last lecture, I quoted that passage from paragraph four of Fides et Ratio, 
in which John Paul II is talking about implicit philosophy, and, and he speaks there of there being certain truths about how we ought to act, the distinction between good and evil and so forth, that everyone knows, everyone knows. So too, what Thomas is referring to when he talks about natural law, he's referring to the fact that every human being is capable, quite naturally, of distinguishing between good and evil. And the most basic precept here, or guideline for human action, will be what? Do good and avoid evil. Do good and avoid evil. Now, often when people hear that, they figure, good grief, what kind of advice is that? It just, it doesn't seem to tell me what to do at all. It's just a kind of banality. It's a truism. It's a truism. It's not a banality. But this is, again, the way in which Thomas proceeds. He wants to start at the beginning. He wants to start with something that no one is likely to deny. The reaction to do good and avoid evil is not that one wants to reject it, but it seems so obvious you wonder why should anyone mention it. Well, what Thomas does when he talks about natural law is say what we're doing here in the practical order is analogous to what goes on in the theoretical order. Obviously, there are certain things that come first there. They're embedded in any of our thinking. The first thing that the human mind grasps, he says there, is being, is being. And by this he means you grasp anything that you do, you understand anything that you do as something, as some being. Obvious. Of course it's obvious. What is the first judgment that we make in theoretical reasoning? That it's impossible for something to be and not to be at the same time in the same respect. The principle of contradiction. Another of the things John Paul II mentioned as a constituent of implicit philosophy. Who is going to deny that? Answer, no one. If someone denies it, he is going to be caught in an incoherence because he will have to invoke it in order to deny it. Either his denial is meant seriously or it isn't, and then the affirmation, the contradictory of it, is equally tenable. So it can't be avoided. And why do we mention these things? Because reasoning starts off both in the theoretical order and in the practical order with a primary judgment that no one could gainsay, no one could deny, and we move on from there. This anchors us. This anchors us. Well, of course, we do want to know, are there any other guidelines for human action, for the appraisal of human action, other than do good and avoid evil? And Thomas gives us a little help here. And he alludes, he points to what he calls natural inclination. And we're back to what I've been talking about, referring to several times, as man as a microcosm. Huh? That is, man as summing up all of the levels of being in the cosmos and adding to them his distinctive mark. So Thomas ticks off these natural inclinations. There's one, he says, that is so basic we share it with everything in the cosmos, and that is the instinct or inclination to preserve ourselves in existence. In our case, of course, that's going to be not just warding off dangers, but eating and drinking. Huh? That's the way we preserve ourselves in existence. And these two are instinctive or natural desires. We have other desires that we share with animals to mate and so forth, to raise our young. And finally, there is a natural inclination, which is peculiar to us, namely to live in society and to pursue the truth and ultimately truth about God. Are these inclinations, are they meant to be guidelines for action? As if eat 
and drink would have the same status as do good and avoid evil? Obviously not. What Thomas gives is the summary statement here is that all those things to which we have a natural inclination, reason naturally judges to be good. Reason naturally judges to be good. The pursuit of these objects of our natural inclination is moral only to the degree that it comes under the sway and the direction of reason. So that while Thomas doesn't lay out a number of precepts here in the manner of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, although he will see those coming very rapidly after what he's talking about here, what we can surmise he's saying is this, our pursuit of food and drink has to be such that it is directed by reason to our overall good. The way in which we mate has to be directed by reason and to our good and to the good of others. And so too, with respect to our instinctive desire to live in society, this can be done well or badly. So only as it comes under the direction of reason will it count as a moral act. So while these natural inclinations provide, so to speak, the material that he wants to talk about when he talks about guidelines for action, what we would get out of this are pursue food and drink in such a way that this is conducive to your overall good, pursue sexual congress and so forth to the degree that this is directed by reason to your overall good, and so too with the other one. So the mark of it is rational direction, rational direction. And that's what makes these to be moral. These are self-evidently true. For a human being, it's self-evidently true that his pursuit of food and drink ought not to be just pell-mell or instinctive, but it has to be brought under the sway of reason because we're going to say, why did you eat that whole pizza? Huh? I mean, it's not going to be enough to say it was there. Huh? I mean, perhaps some animals would just eat everything that's put in front of them, although I guess they don't. But imagine that we're not going to blame them for it. But if you do, it's not going to be enough to say, I have this natural inclination to eat. Of course you do. Everyone does. But in a human life, that has to be brought within the context of the sway of reason and our overall good. So there are these self-evident truths. And it's what we read in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That's a kind of natural law view. So Thomas is willing, again, to make these very obvious remarks to get us going, to set, let us say, the parameter, parameters of the moral order, and then we can proceed toward more and more concrete advice as to how we ought to act. I ended the last lecture by referring to a, an encyclical, John Paul II, and I can move into the finale of this lecture by referring to another encyclical of his called Veritatis Splendor, The Splendor of Truth in which, notably, the Holy Father uses this analysis of action that I'm trying to sketch for you from Thomas Aquinas here and acknowledges that this is what he's doing. So if you read that encyclical and you've listened to these lucid lectures, you're going to sense a certain uh, compatibility between what he says there and what I'm referring you two here in Thomas Aquinas. What the Holy Father does in Veritatis Splendor, and he's answering certain difficulties that have been raised or mistakes that have been made by Catholic moralists in recent years, he draws attention to the fact, he reminds us of the fact that the appraisal of a human action is in terms of the object of the action, the end for the sake of which the action is undertaken, and the circumstances in which the act is performed. All of those 
have to meet the requirements of reason if the action is going to be a good action. It's not sufficient to say that what I am doing is a good thing to do. I'm giving alms to the poor if my motive, my end in doing that is vainglory. And I'm in the gospel, we're tinkling a bell to call attention to the fact that we are giving alms. Or perhaps at the entrance of a campus, we put up a big thermometer indicating how much money we're donating to the United Way. We might say this deprives the action of any kind of generosity. We are kind of thumping our chest. So anyway, you get the picture. It'd be possible to do a good deed for the wrong reason. Remember murder in the cathedral. The last temptation is the greatest treason to do the right deed for the wrong reason. Huh? And so you could give alms for the wrong reason, out of vain glory. You could do the wrong thing. Huh? You could steal money because you say, I want to give money to the poor, Robin Hood. Huh? And you might do something which is not a bad action in its kind and have a good intention, but the circumstances in which you do it would vitiate the action. We'd say that's not an appropriate way for human beings to act. So that, say, if spouses engaged in the activity in which they rightly engage and so forth, in the middle of the street, we're going to say, wait a minute, this is reprehensible. But you're not saying what they're doing as spouses is wrong, or their intention in doing it immediately, let's say, is wrong, but this is not the place for that sort of thing. Not too savory an example, perhaps, but my imagination isn't working as fertilely as it might. But that perhaps is, if nothing else, it's a vivid example of the way in which the circumstances can vitiate an action, even though the object, the thing that we're doing, and the aim or purpose for which we're doing it are without fault. But what those three fontes moralitatis, as they're called fancily in Latin, the fonts of morality, what they draw our attention to is that you can't just have one of those and say that's sufficient for calling an action good. And many of the things that the Pope is worried about is confronting in Veritatis Splendor are in effect of that kind, moral theories of that kind. If your intention is good, don't worry too much about what you're doing. Or if what you're doing is good, don't worry too much. It's usually the first one. Your intention sort of trumps any negative judgment that would be made about what you're doing. And he's saying, well, wait a minute, that's not the case. And he reminds us of the analysis that we find in Thomas Aquinas. This is not peculiar to him, of course. It's part of the great patrimony of Christian morality. And the Pope is rightly worried here with the fact that there seem to be some people speaking on behalf of Christianity who were, in effect, undermining this very fundamental notion of how it is that we appraise human action. Now, I mentioned that when Aristotle comes to flesh out what is going to fulfill the ultimate end, those specific virtues that will be constitutive of our overall good or ultimate end, he comes up with, obviously, a set. I said virtue, so there must be more than one. But we remember now, I hope, how it is that he comes up with a plurality of virtues. Rational activity, which is the human function, has a variety of meanings. Insofar as it means this, its virtue will be that. Insofar as it's rational activity of another kind. And so on. But this is an ordered set. Huh? And we can say that they're ordered for Aristotle in this way, that the moral virtue, that is bringing our emotions and passions under the sway of reason, acquiring 
temperance and fortitude. This is the basic move in the moral order. Without these, without getting our own house in order, so to speak, not much else is likely to happen in terms of moral efflorescence and fulfillment. We can always be undone by our appetites if they are not brought under the sway of reason. That's what we mean by moral virtue. These participated rational acts whereby our emotional life contributes to our overall good rather than disrupts it and ruins our project. The moral virtues, consequently, are more necessary and obviously necessary than the other virtues, but they're not the most important one. There is a sense in which they are dispositive to our acquiring other virtues. And for Aristotle, as for Thomas, Finally, what the point of moral virtue is, is to so get our personal house in order and the civic house in order that we can turn our minds to things which are beyond the merely practical. And this is why Aristotle will say at the end of his magnificent Nicomachean Ethics that theoria or contemplation is the ultimate and the most perfect expression of our ultimate end. So that, again, the well-ordered person in a well-ordered society can devote himself to contemplation of the divine. That might seem a little recherche to us, as if the whole schmear is being talked about in such a way that it's merely conducive to the activity of an elite. People who do metaphysics, for example, or people who do philosophy, and we think of the great mass of human beings, and we say, well, are they likely to get into that? Now, there are several ways of handling that as a matter of Aristotelian interpretation or just talking as we are here, and that would be to say that happiness is constituted, practical happiness, by the civic virtues, by the moral virtues, and that's not nothing. Those virtues may not be ultimate perfection, if Aristotle and Thomas are right in saying that contemplation is, but that doesn't mean these aren't philosophic, that they don't make one fulfilled and happy and so forth. There's just more to the story. And we might say most people are so caught up, necessarily so, in practical activities that doing those well is a great thing, and it's in that that their moral fulfillment will consist. But that still has a kind of elitist tone to it. There are a few people who have the leisure and so on, and they can devote themselves to contemplation. Once in thinking about this, I was reminded of such well-preserved or reasonably well-preserved Greek cities as Agrigento in southern Italy, which was the native place of the uh, Greek philosopher Empedocles. And if you go there now, there's the Porto Empedocles. The port is still named after this ancient Greek philosopher. But if you walk around, there are the ruins of the ancient city there. And the thing that struck me in looking at that was the theater. I mean, this was obviously a central sort of civic event to go to the theater. And it dawned on me that there is a way in which not only ordinary people, but philosophers too, require this kind of depiction of human action in terms of a transcendent type of judgment of them in order to feel in tune with the cosmos. This is a very complicated way of saying there is a contemplative dimension to our response to great art. And here we're talking about Greek tragedy. And think of 
what the themes and moral of Greek tragedies are. I mean, the contemplation of what it is to be a human agent in this cosmos, the mystery of human action, we're somehow reconciled to that by way of the play, and we come away with a sense that, again, as I put it, we are in tune with the universe. That's a contemplative moment. So there is a sense, I think, in which while there is a difference between going to the theater and doing the sort of thing that Aristotle does in the metaphysics, it's a pleasant thought to think that he went to the theater too. He wrote the Poetics, after all, the first close analysis of Greek tragedy, and clearly took it to be enormously important in understanding what human life is all about. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.